Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This podcast is supported in part by the Bertha Foundation. G'day, Dan Illich here with a pre-show announcement to let you know that if you missed out on tickets to the Opera House show for our 10 years of Irrational Fear, you can listen to it now. It's on the Irrational Fear Patreon. So go to patreon.com forward slash Irrational Fear. Become a member and you'll see the post there. Uh, The audio is a little dodgy because uh, the recorder was recorded at quite a high level. So unfortunately, the really loud music of Paul McDermott, we had to cut out. But the good news is we're going to try and get him on another live show next month. So you'll be able to hear that right here on the Free Feed podcast, I think. Um, Yeah, so go to irrationalfear.com forward slash Patreon to hear our 10 years of Irrational Fear live show live from the Sydney Opera House. It was astonishing. And uh, let me just say, Lewis Hobber's rant about the Queen's Jubilee was something else. It'll make you feel extremely patriotic. Right now, however, you're going to listen to an incredible live show we did at the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas about a month ago, about two weeks before the federal election. This was a show loosely about satire versus journalism. I think it was called The Joke is Mightier Than the Pen. And we had some of the best satirists in Sydney join us on stage to discuss whether comedy or satire is better than journalism. Right there in the home, the crucible of Australia. Australian journalism, which is the Judith Nielsen Institute. So please enjoy this live show. Um, if you were a member of the Patreon, you probably would have seen the video of this, oh, I don't know, about a month ago. So it's here. This is the thing. You get these live shows a little before everyone else. So please go to patreon.com forward slash irrational fear uh, to get early access to our live shows and our special events. All right. Um, catch you later. Bye. Yeah, we're at the Judith Nielsen Institute. It's beautiful. I'm recording my end of irrational fear on Gadigal land of the Euro Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. We need a treaty. Let's start the show. A rational fear contains naughty words like Brexit, Canberra, Fair Dickum, and Section 40. A rational fear recommends listening by immature audiences. Tonight, satirists declare themselves so important they don't actually have to be funny. <laughs> and a 
journalist declares themselves hilarious after putting 10 dog pugs in a story about hot dogs. <laughs> and if you can win a Walkley for a wacky headline, where's the Walkley for most scathing Trump impression? It's... It's big. It's 15 days since the next... Oh, it's 15 days until the next federal election. Satirists, start your punchlines. This is Irrational Fear! Irrational Put your cheers in context. Lewis and I just did a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival in front of 800 people, and it was All a right, slightly mate. different. Oh. Slightly, we're used to a slightly different level of cheering. Yeah, wow. every person here is worth 100 Melburnians. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Irrational Fear. I'm your host, former host of CBS's Late Late Show, Dan Illich, and this is Irrational Fear live at the Judith Nielsen Institute. Where we'll be asking the question, is the joke mightier than the pen? Open, open brackets, probably not, close brackets, question mark. All right, now we've put together a supreme team of Sydney's satirists to ask this question or to answer this question. And what a team it is. The very fact that Sydney has like five employed satirists uh, is astonishing. It says a lot about the political comedy industrial complex, doesn't it? Um, let's meet our fear mongers tonight. They are a writer, performer, director and podcaster currently slinging topical jokes at the mainstream media from the bastion of the mainstream media. It is SBS's Ben Jenkins. Thank you. Ben, what is it like to be so anti-authority but being a part of the authority? Tremendously ironic. Uh, yeah, I'm really digging into my anarchist roots by producing uh, satire with government money. <laughs> and we've got a three-time Walkley award-winning cartoonist who has jokes as sharp as her pencil. It's Kathy Wilcox. Kathy, friend of the show, have you killed anyone with your uh, with your pencil before? Uh, oh, look, just bugs, I guess. <laughs> like, like, I had ants infest the scanner and things like that a little while back. But, but ants of so. corruption. Oh. Yeah, ants do that. Oh, no. When the radical left the hear this, you're going to be cancelled, Kathy. You're going to be cancelled. Yeah, that's like, I think Looney uh, kills a duck a day. <laughs> <laughs> and they're a comedy creator, purveyor of wacky clips, former chaser editor, the creator of the topical comedy podcast of News Fighters. It's Dylan Bain. <laughs> Dylan, you're a faceless man of satire. How does that feel to have your face out here for once? I've never had this many people in my edit suite in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a Walkley award-winning opinionist who's risen to the heights of becoming one of Australia's greatest ever smart asses. It's Jan Fran! Jan, you're, you're at the top now. You're Australia's number one smartass. What's yeah. next for you? Oh, you know, I just thought I'd just create human life. Yeah. You know, just <laughs> not bring... unlike a god. <laughs> yeah, not unlike a god, yeah. just that sort of thing. I'm at the spontaneous flatulence part of it, so just FYI. So you're in for a ride. <laughs> and he's the host of Triple J Drive. But what sets him apart on this panel is that he is a taller, cheaper Andrew Denton. is <laughs> Lewis Hopper. <laughs> 
Lewis, thanks for being Andrew Denton on this panel. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the only Andrew Denton who shows up to events in 2022. <laughs> it's like if, uh, if like Andrew Denton went into the machine with the fly, but it was there was a giraffe in there. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not in the at-risk category of COVID, so um, he sends me out as his buddy double. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, give COVID to Lewis. You're immune right now, though, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, I've had it. Yeah, you're, you're fine. Well. Yeah. All right, great. Now, tonight, as a panel, uh, we, as well as you, we're going to decide uh, on this answer or on, on the question if jokes are better than journalism. It is a bit of a hard one, but all of us has an important role in this room because at the end we're going to take a poll and then we're going to put it on this sheet which Kathy has designed and then we're going to mail it to the Governor General and it will be then sent to Royal Ascent. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we've even got... Oh, sorry. Royal Ascent! That's <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. When Dan pitched that joke to me, I was like, I don't know what Royal Ascent is. <laughs> Does anyone else not know what and Royal Ascent is? He was like, don't worry, the sound cue yeah. will, will fix it. Yeah, yeah I'm like, oh, okay. It's the outside of Royal Descent. Uh, okay. It's a little round, but the Queen's the office to get to her throne. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Royal Descent, isn't that Prince Andrew? Uh, <laughs> and, We've actually got our very own uh, special postie. Uh, our postie Sarah is here. She's going to take Fantastic. our... Take whatever we decide tonight and mail it direct to the Governor-General. It's very exciting. All right. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty, I just want to talk to you a little bit about news consumption in Australia. We've done... This is very research-heavy, this part of the show. Now, first of all, there's some pretty interesting things that are happening with media consumption in Australia right now, and it's all got to do with those damn meddling kids. In 2020, a survey of young people found that social media outranked their family and friends as television as their main source of news. Now, this statistic isn't surprising. Uh, we all know that young people can't get enough of their damn phones, but when you put it in context of the bigger picture, you can see just how online as a news source has grown across generations with newspapers in the top three news sources for only the pre-boomer generation. That is crazy old. That's older than Lewis. That Lewis. is uh, pretty astounding. In fact, in 2020, for the first time, online news sources outranked all the other forms of news in terms of consumption for Australians. And also, young folks for the first time are actually setting the agenda as to how those news sources are being influenced in Australia, which is super interesting. There was no kind of greater moment for satire, I think, or the power of satire, than when Facebook turned off the taps to news in Australia. I don't know if you remember this, this was, this was on their platform in 2021. That was about 300 years ago. Uh, I think there were people in this room who weren't even born then. In case you don't remember, we made this handy explainer to remind you just what happened. So why isn't there any news on your Facebook news feed? Here's a quick explainer by me, Rupert Murdoch, Lieutenant General of the News Corp and assorted expeditionary forces. Now, Mark Zuckerberg owns a website, Facebook's, and Google owns a website called Google's, and their websites own the data of all Australians who use it, which means they know what you want before you do. They're really good at selling advertising. 
I own newspapers that are really bad at selling advertising, and those newspapers own the Australian government. And the Australian government makes laws. So one day, on a whim, I thought, geez, Louise, we're bad at selling ads. Not everyone wants 60-month interest-free deals for electrical, computers, furniture, bedding and flooring from Harvey Norman. Some people want magnetic lashes, leggings that make your bum pop and other bullshit. We have no idea. But then I said to myself, Rupert, you own a perfectly good government. It's just sitting there doing nothing. Maybe you can get them to force the blokes with the websites that are good at selling ads to give us money. Then I called the government to my house by private jet, made them pay for it, and I said, hello, government man. I forget their names. If you still enjoy being the government, can you do this? And they said, we do still enjoy being the government boss, yes. And yes, we can do that. Now, the websites that are good at selling ads have to, by law, give me money. And the best part about it, Googles and Facebooks give the money straight to me, tax-free. And we wouldn't have it any other way. Why start paying tax now? Some journalists would say, oh, but there's no way to guarantee that money will be invested in new journalism. Well, none of those journalists work for me. I don't hire journalists. Oh, and you may have noticed Facebook News is back for now. Zuckerberg told the government he's only going to pay us if he feels like it. Well, I respect that. At the end of the day, Facebook, Google and I all agree that we're not going to pay any money to the Australian government. Because why would you? They're a bunch of cowards. <laughs> So, what's this got to do with new satire? Well, on that day, seven out of the ten top postings from websites on Facebook were news websites. Uh, some entertainment news, uh, and there's a couple of satire in there too. But the very following day, nine <laughs> out of the ten links posted on Facebook were delivering news from satire sites. And the audience is young and, you know, and he, I'm very lucky to have uh, John here from The Chaser. He, he's one of, the, one of the slaves of The Chaser, working for minimum wage, flinging jokes. Uh, give him a round of applause. He's in, in audience tonight. So we got uh, the Batuta Advocate make up one, two, three, four, five, the top five, the Chaser in six and seven, then the Batuta Advocate, and the only one, the only website to not actually uh, be satire in the top ten on that day was the Penrith Panthers website. <laughs> and that's arguable. That's arguable. That's arguable that they're not satire, yeah. Uh, do they even exist, depending on <laughs> Pretty astounding stuff there. For folks in the audience who don't know what is a Batuta Advocate, it's like the onion in the outback. Uh, it's a satirical newspaper set in the outback. Uh, this is their front page for today. Uh, I really like this one about um, Albo's latest gaffe. Journo's trick questions backfires as Albo is able to name entire Rabbitohs 1971 grand final side. <laughs> Very good. This is some other headlines from today. Channel 7 reveals Sonia Kruger will stay on after Big Brother to moderate next leader's debate. Uh, this is one from, the, from a few months back that I love. Bloke who regularly buys pingers off strangers in pub bathrooms. Not sure what's inside this vaccine. <laughs> 
and this one good. Is always This one always rolls out whenever there's a bit of gun violence in America. Australia enjoys another peaceful day under the oppressive gun control regime. <laughs> and of course there's the Chaser. And the Chaser has very kind of similar sort of deal on there on their front page as well. Very funny stuff. And uh, thankfully, Charles sent me, uh, Charles from The Chaser sent me this data about their audience. And it's pretty astounding to see, you know, 25 to 34, uh, 35 to 44, all the way to 54. That's a huge chunk of the audience there. A bunch of those young people will start consuming The Chaser and Batuta at, that, at their age and then continue on for years to come. But let's put it in comparison the footprints of these kind of websites to other mainstream media. So SBS, who Ben works for on Instagram, <laughs> has 117,000 followers on SBS Instagram. At the very top, you've got ABC News. Yay! <laughs> All right! <laughs> Take that, Ben. Wow. Yeah. You SBS loser. No fucking yay for SBS. Yeah. Well, All ABC right. ABC is Australia's most trusted news brand, that's for sure. Seven, yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 789,000 followers on Instagram. Mm. Uh, does anyone want to hazard a guess as to how many followers Batuta Advocate has? Two. Two followers? <laughs> Shaking it up. Two followers? 300,000. 300,000? Yeah, 300,000. Approaching a mil, I reckon. Approaching a mil. Anyone else? Over a mil, 1.1. It is 952,000 followers. They are the biggest news brand on Instagram in Australia. <laughs> and also, they make a delicious beer. Thanks, Mature Advocate. Yeah, and also, in terms of power of satire and kind of communicating ideas, uh, a simple article like Carbon Capture and Storage might get 25,000 clicks on ABC News. But when turned into an uh, interesting package with satire and jokes uh, with Juice Media, it can get close to a million. So, satire reaches audiences, and I want to ask the fear mongers here tonight, let's talk about it. If a scoop falls in the forest and no one is there to see it, does it even exist? Do ratings matter here? Do clicks matter here? Well, as somebody from SBS, I have to say straight away, ratings don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> in, fact, in fact, I see ratings in a similar way to golf. In a, the, the, the lower you get, you win. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to go on to talk about this uh, in, in, the, in the little thing I'm doing, but I, I, I think when we talk about reach, we, we, we sort of have to talk about what that reach does, because it's, you know, it's one thing to say, oh, only so many people read this article, but heaps of people saw this sketch. What, what, what's it doing for those people? You know what I mean? Like, like, what information is being conveyed? I'm not saying these things are completely devoid of information, but I am saying that, like, you know, what's the outcome there? Because from the creator's point of view, those numbers are well, wackadoo great. Like, people are watching it and they're being entertained by it, or at least they're sharing it, or hate watching, whatever else. But, like, to, to paraphrase Daryl Kenningham from the castle, it's what you do with it, you know what I mean? Like, it's what what's going on when people are ingesting that, is my question. Yeah, like, for the, for example, the, like, vaccine joke on Batuta about, you know, men um, who'll buy pingers in a bathroom but won't take the vaccine. That was, like... You know, that was a great joke. Everyone made that joke at some point. And, uh, but, like, no, that is not helping. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, if you sent that to an anti-vaxxer, they're just going to be like, oh, it's just bloody 
fucking joke. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like, don't get me wrong, it's not like you could send them a well-reasoned argument that would do it either. But it's kind of like I, I don't necessarily think that a satire, satire reaching an audience is the same as satire teaching an audience. And also, like as an as an article, like that article that languished on those low numbers, like would have had one would hope it's ABC, so you know it's going to be good. Well, <laughs> like a lot of interesting things that these people wouldn't necessarily have considered or heard. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's like really interesting that like this stuff has the cut through that it does and I think it speaks to as much of the sort of skill and ability of these satirists as much as it does to the lack of uh, talent in Australian media, not ABC. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, if this is... Yeah, I think, I think it's kind of going like that, if that makes sense. Yeah. Jan, you, you make tons of viral kind of videos that go gangbusters. Do you ever dare to look at the analytics to see how long people have watched? That's all I'm doing. <laughs> yes. Um, I think, like, to answer your first question, if a scoop falls in the forest and no one hears it, like, does it make a sound, does it land anywhere? The short answer is not really until you need some kind of a baseline to try and decipher the news spectrum. Mm. So, for example, you can say, oh, Sky News is over here, SBS is over here. Nobody watches either of those things. That doesn't really matter, wow. but they're kind of on... <laughs> I worked at SBS for 10 years. I like, know. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, I think babe. I might have your desk. Um, yeah, I think you might have my desk. Good, good luck. Um, yeah, so I, th I think the importance of, of um, uh, stories or news outlets to exist, even though they don't get a super high audience, is just to be able to diversify, I suppose, the media landscape, right? Because we, ha we do have a diversity problem in terms of ownership rather than, you know, cultural or, or gender diversity. We have news.com. I mean, we have, well. have news.com, we have The Australian, and we have the Courier Mail and the Herald Sun. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got plenty of newspapers. Yeah, I think, Kathy, as a subscriber of the Sydney Morning Herald, <laughs> I feel like sometimes I'm subsidising your Twitter account. <laughs> well, you probably are, and I, and I would say, you know, whether, we, whether what I do has cut through or not uh, is, is demonstrated by the fact that if I do things that are, that are universally critical of the government, they love me, there's, you know, lots of retweets and lots of likes and all the rest of it, and then I do one cartoon about, you know, maybe Albo's not, not performing as well as he might, and suddenly, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know if it's bringing anyone around, yeah. unless occasionally someone might say, oh, well, okay, fair point, but mostly people say, that's really unfair, <laughs> I mean, you can't yeah. say that. Water drops in their profiles <laughs> very, very often. It's what, interesting. It's, it's, the, it's the sort of other side of what you were saying, Jen, about like a, a diversified media. And like, it's obviously you want a range of views, and the media is far more like, I don't, I don't mean ethnically diverse, although, I mean, technically. That'd be nice. Te oh, that would be nice. I mean, like, you know, so it's not just one thing, but. W what comes from having all these little pockets is a siloing effect and Twitter is a really great example of that where everybody's really siloed on their own thing and so the, the, the polarisation there of like you making a, a relatively benign criticism of say the leader of the Labour Party all of a sudden they just don't they don't get that from their own internal silo so they think what the fuck's happening she's been turned the only time Irrational Fear has lost subscribers on Patreon across the month has been the day that we had Joe Hildebrand on so we could make fun of him to his face about News Corp's turn to being a green environmental publication <laughs> it was like we, we spent half an hour making jokes to Joe Hildebrand 
to his face about News Corp's track record on climate change. But I also think that is an interesting point in terms of like satire reaching an audience is because uh, like for something like that, for instance, like we don't make we don't make our living off irrational fear, so that's fine. Like we can go. Lewis, like, Lewis, Lewis doesn't make his living off irrational fear. <laughs> yeah. Which is lucky because so far I think I'm about a thousand dollars in the hole to this podcast. Uh, but Lewis bought all these delicious soft drinks. <laughs> and once again, I want to say thank you to Matuda Bitter, Matuda Bitter, sponsoring my lifestyle. Um, no, but like it means like in the future you may not get Joe Hildebrand on, right? And because you can't afford to not have that. Or like there are plenty of no, um, satirical places, particularly places like Batuta or whatever, who again make so much money from beer it doesn't matter. But um, there are if you if you are a freelance satirist, you can't afford to piss off your audience. No, it's really Where, interesting. It's oh sorry, I'll let you finish. Which whereas if you are a journalistic entity, if you're, if you're part of a corporation that has some backbone, you actually have the money to fund that. Yeah, yeah, yeah interesting if you have some backbone. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, That's the big question. I've yeah. heard this described as the Substack effect, which is, you know, that Substack is like a, a, a newsletter service, basically, that allows you to really easily monetize. I'll let you know there are three people in this room who know exactly what a Substack <laughs> is. Um, so basically, what, what happens is when, when a journalist has a big following, or a columnist usually has a big following, they go, fuck this, I'm going to leave my outlet and go to Substack, get the money directly. And it's super easy to set up and your and your uh, your audience tends to follow you. But what happens is because you're suddenly beholden not to your editor and not to your paper, but to the freaks who give you money, mm. it creates this crazy feedback loop where you start sort of writing more and more to please them and all of a sudden you have 20,000 bosses and you see those numbers go up and down so it's like this real-time thing where it's like is this what you want is this what you want is this what you want and I'll, and then I'll, let, you know, I'll let you know the 372 people that pay for rational fear on patreon are completely excellent <laughs> <laughs> all right yep. ladies and gentlemen and other folks in the room please give it up for Ben Jenkins oh yes come on <laughs> I thought you were just, I you were just throwing to me, being like, that was a great point, give him a class. Ben Jenkins, stop talking. Ben Jenkins, stop talking. <laughs> yes, sir. Look, I'm a bit worried, reading back over this as I was before you guys walked in, that what follows is less uh, an amusing um, sort of reflection on the nature of political satire and more a full-blown mental breakdown, 10 years in the making, unleashed on a crowd who didn't ask for any of this. So please <laughs> bear with me, because for over a decade in one form or another, uh, like John, I've worked for the Chaser, that's where I started. Um, I've worked in the field of uh, political comedy and only now, having been asked to talk to you about it, do I reflect that I have no idea of what it's for at all. <laughs> and this troubles me, and it troubles me um, because political comedy is a mode of comedy that, unlike its less serious cousins in the sweeping halls of Chuckle Manor, seems to <laughs> insist that it is, in fact, for something beyond the conveyance of laughs, goops, japes, etc., from the comedian to the viewer. There's a worthiness to it. Heron in the form that suggests that in the creation and gestion of satire, something larger than entertainment is taking place. But here's the thing. Every time I try and articulate what that is, I start to sweat. Now, there are two cliches that I've been carrying around in my head for the past decade that have been a comfort to me, and they are this. Satire can change minds where conventional journal journalism cannot, and satire holds the powerful to account. But when I hold these up, to any kind of serious scrutiny, they fall apart. Now, j just quickly, I just want to say for the purposes of this meltdown, 
<laughs> I'm really only concerned with the kind of satire, that hyper-reactive news cycle style of political comedy. Something happens in the world, then within a, a week, the satirist has released a piece on it. A week is actually quite long. You know, the headlines you saw there, that was a day turnaround. The work that I do on the feed, that's four days. And whether that takes the form of a sketch or a comedian being serious behind a desk or a monologue or a cartoon or whatever giggle pot we're putting our insights in, and giggle pot is a technical term for you. <laughs> so the reason I'm leaving out satirical novels or films or TV shows is that they represent just a fraction of a fraction of comedy, uh, political comedy currently being produced. And here in Australia, that fraction is basically a rounding error. And because it's really the only game in town, it's also where I've spent most of my career. So I feel qualified, if a little mortified, to reach the conclusion that when it comes to those two aims, the changing of minds and the holding of powerful to account, uh, this ubiquitous style of political comedy is, outside of the gratification of the maker and viewer, useless. <laughs> I also want to point out, and I do feel this is very important in relation to you not all hating me, that what follows applies just as much to a lot of the stuff that I have produced in my career as it does to everybody else. So let's go. Satire changes minds. I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you changed your mind about anything? Not what brand of hummus to buy or what socks to wear, but something big, something like how you feel about climate change or what party you'll vote for or any of the handfuls of beliefs that make you, you. This is an incredibly rare thing to happen to an adult. There's a really good book by an Australian philosopher called Eleanor Gordon Smith called Stop Being Reasonable. And I read it a few years ago and it planted this seed of doubt in my mind. That's the first question she asked in the book. When was the last time that you changed your mind? Because if this has happened to you in the recent past, this kind of seismic shift in thinking on an issue that we're talking about here, I'll bet it was for something, I'll bet it was because of something that happened to you or to somebody you love, or a lengthy conversation you had, or just the long and boring chipping away at a premise until something just came loose. What I'm willing to bet didn't happen to you on the road to Damascus is that you watched a three-minute sketch on the issue and completely changed your thinking. <laughs> now, there is a good reason why I'm skeptical about that. A lot of political comedy is terrible. Like Voltaire's remark that the Holy Roman Empire wasn't holy, nor Roman, nor an empire, the overwhelming majority of political comedy is neither political nor comedy. <laughs> Topical satire has become, in essence, the satirists saying the opposite of what they actually believe, but in a hat. <laughs> in, in order to enjoy most modern political comedy, you have to already be on board with the premise from the very start. The audience needs to know that the satirist hates the people they hate, thinks the things that they think are stupid are stupid, and likes the things that they like. Tom Lehrer, some of you may know, one of the most famous satirists uh, in America in the olden days, uh, he had this to say of satire. He said, the audience usually has to be with you, I'm afraid. I always regarded myself as not even preaching to the converted. I was titillating the converted. It is a deeply incurious way of processing the world around us. And what's more, leaves zero chance that anyone who doesn't already think as you think will be persuaded. Now, please don't get me wrong here. I don't think for a moment that good satire uh, reaches across the aisle in some sort of milquetoast centrism. But what I am saying is that if we are going to have an endless churn of super partisan satire where our ideological opponents are pantomime villains, we can't also turn around and expect it to do anything but the mild titillation of the already faithful. And this is a point that I, I keep coming back to, that modern political comedy is, by its nature, deeply incurious. I've said this in writings elsewhere, but one of, 
I believe one of the only truly worthwhile things we can do with the time we're given on Earth is have a nice long think about how that world works and how we work and how the people in it work. Modern political comedy discourages that impulse in both the creator and the viewer, stranding both in an endless feedback loop of ever louder, louder choruses of, I know, right? I know, right? I know, right? <laughs> okay, so let's just quickly move on to satire holds the powerful to account. This gets repeated a lot. It's the breakfast is the most important meal of the day, <laughs> but for political discourse. And it's a matter that I have to admit I have been skeptical of for a while. One fairly obvious piece of evidence against this is that if the powerful truly were afraid of being held to account by satirical news programs, they wouldn't voluntarily appear on quite so many of them. They wouldn't take to social media to share clips where they're lampooned, accompanied by a self-effacing comment like, ah, not sure about this one. They How wouldn't go <laughs> They wouldn't go out of their way to get photos of themselves with the satirists. But many do. And obviously, if the satirists themselves were serious about the business of holding these people to account, they wouldn't pose for these photos. What we have is a, is a relationship that looks less like, uh, look more like symbiosis than any kind of antagonism. And what's more, if it were true that astute mockery, incisive wit, the poison pen and all that was in fact a formidable weapon against tyranny, then given the abundance of both satire and tyranny, it shouldn't be difficult to find a real world example of this account holding taking place. But it is difficult. It's incredibly difficult. And why should they? be afraid. I mean, the limits of satire as an agent of any kind of meaningful change are fairly well catalogued, often by the satirist himself. To quote another long dead person, when he founded the Establishment Club in 1961, uh, Peter Cook told reporters that he was hoping to model it on those wonderful Berlin cabarets that did so much to stop the rise of Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of Hitler, a segue that I really do try to avoid where possible, <laughs> how did he feel about Chaplin's vicious skewering in The Great Dictator? Well, he fucking loved it. The man owned two copies. And speaking of bad dictators, really? yeah, wow. Speaking of bad dictators, there I go again. Donald Trump changed the satire calculation entirely. The Trump era, despite breathless predictions, did not pr prove a boon for the earnest desk-leaning set in America. A common explanation given was that you can no longer ridicule politics because it itself had become so inherently ridiculous in and of itself. That this was such a popular refrain always seemed faintly stupid to me because it doesn't even intuitively pass as true. Ridiculous people are in fact quite easy to ridicule. It's right there in the name. But, and here's the crucial point, for ridicule to be enjoyable and satisfying, the party being ridiculed must be capable of shame. As Krusty once said, the sap's got to have dignity. <laughs> it's often said that politicians are so hard to pin down post-Trump yeah. is because we're living in a post-truth universe. But that gets it wrong. The universe we currently occupy is post-shame. People who like to talk about the power of satire often invoke the emperor's new clothes where only a brave truth-telling child is able to voice what the others won't. But the emperor wears no clothes and the child is right, the child, the crowd sees the truth of this and the emperor is shamed. What Trump showed very clearly is that if the emperor waits a second until the kid has said his piece and then says, yes I do actually, and then goes about his day with his cock and balls out, the little <laughs> shit doesn't really have a comeback. <laughs> In closing, there's one thing that satire can do, and it's offer the audience a kind of catharsis. It's a release of emotion, of anger, of frustration, of rage and bile. It feels good. But here's my question. 
Do we really want to be venting that stuff out into the ether? Isn't the pressure of those feelings what drives people to make meaningful action, to take that rage and focus it on organising to affect meaningful material change? Because here's the thing, if all we're doing here is making stuff that makes us feel smart for people who already agree with us with no real impact on those with whom we disagree or the targets of our ire, then all we are really doing is an act of self-gratification and all it really achieves is a kind of temporary good feeling in the form of a release. And there is a word for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wanking. The word is wanking. The, the word is wanking. The word I was saying it was wanking. I thought, well, that's a, that's a restraint. You're not saying wanking for like two seconds. I couldn't find my mic. <laughs> Well, that's it for the show. So thanks very yeah. much for coming, everyone. That was really great. Uh, uh, that was uh, super, super good, Ben. Uh, I think about a lot of that stuff all the time. One of the Rational Fear shows we did was in Bega. We did climate, a whole series, I did a tour of climate vulnerable venues, and Bega was one of them. And it was remarkable after that show, sitting in the pub, having folks come up to us and thank us for doing the show there because they wanted to laugh about climate change. Because they'd had like, their houses all burned down. Their houses all burned down. There's like, and it was just one of those things where folks were coming up to us in the pub and saying, oh, you know, that was so wonderful to hear jokes about that. And uh, it truly felt for the first time in my 15-year <laughs> career that we were useful. <laughs> I, do, I do think, though, like, and I didn't put this in because I was already speaking for uh, 45 minutes, but um, <laughs> the, the other side of catharsis is a galvanising sense. It's, 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 the, it's, yeah. it's the other side of it. So catharsis is like, you know, from the Greek, it means like to purify or to purge. It's like a release of something. Whereas, like the galvanizing sense is the opposite of that, where it actually hardens people in a good way. It 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 makes them stronger and it makes them feel seen and it makes them feel powerful. So I do think that's an element of it too. Which is why we're going to Liz Moore to do a show. It's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> um, Trump is an interesting character. A lot of folks, when I was in America doing you know, satire for American, the broadcaster over there, were saying to me, oh, you get, it's going to be so good, it's going to be so good to do Trump jokes. You're so lucky Trump's in power. Uh, as, as people who had to make fun of Trump, did you enjoy that period, Cathy? Uh, it was uh, it was sort of invigorating in the first place and then exhausting in the second place because you realised that you couldn't keep up with the amount of, of stuff that he was doing. You'd be initially, you know, waking up extra early to see what had happened overnight and things. Um, and then you'd be going, well, I do Trump this week. Well, no, it doesn't really matter if I do Trump this week because he'll have done, he'll do something next yeah. week. I can hold off till then. I think that's kind of a deliberate strategy in a way. I mean, like, it's, oh, yeah. it's, always, it's always hard to, to, like, you know, give any kind of credit to him and his inner workings. It's sort of like trying to work out the inner life of a fucking zebra, but like... But, but multiple lies does end up making yeah, a single well, lie like worthless. A strategy, right? Like it was like Joby Yockey peterson who talked about chicken feed, like giving yeah. journalists chicken feed yeah. to make sure they had something to nibble yeah. on. But I it's just like Trump was just right like now. fucking foie gras, like <laughs> forcing it down the throat of a goose. There was, there uh, a lot of folks have suggested that uh, one particular joke, one bit of satire, actually turned Trump into somebody who wanted to run for president. And that joke came from Barack Obama in the White House Correspondence, uh, Correspondence Dinner. Dinner. Um, let's have a look at that joke and see if you think, oh, here we go, here it is. Donald Trump. Yeah, he looks young. Yeah. Let's hear it tonight. <laughs> now I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier, no one is prouder 
to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? <laughs> what really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? <laughs> Kidding aside, obviously we all know about your credentials and breadth of experience. Um, for example, uh, no, seriously, just recently in an episode of Celebrity Apprentice at the steakhouse, the men's cooking team uh, did not impress the judges from Omaha Steaks. And there was a lot of blame to go around, but you, Mr. Trump, recognized that the real problem was a lack of leadership. And so ultimately, you didn't blame Little John or Meatloaf. You fired Gary Busey. And these are the kind of decisions that would keep me up at night. That was the joke that people said. That was the joke that turned Trump into a guy that wanted to run for president and ruin America. That is so hard to hear. If you watch the roast of Donald Trump, which I can't remember what year it happened in, not too far from um, when he ran for, or decided to run for president, there's all these comedians that are like, ha ha, you think you're going to become the president? You're delusional. And watching it now in retrospect, you're like, what the fuck are you clowns doing? Also, if he was like the complete opposite of who he was in every single way, it's quite an inspiring story. <laughs> they said he couldn't do it. I mean, I know, but that, that's kind of the problem is that you actually sort of end up exalting the man yeah. while what you're trying to do is, you know, hold a power to account, but you make him so much more powerful yeah. than if you just said nothing. One thing we didn't want to have happen. Exactly. <laughs> it is truly impressive that for once a really rich guy managed to become president. <laughs> yeah. It's just, what a story. It's a real Sandlot Kids uh, parable. I'm going to share a uh, sketch that I dislike. Uh, I made it in 2016 before Trump uh, was became president uh, and I just thought, oh, this is a hilarious hypothetical. What if Trump did become president and maybe this could be his White House brief Room. White House briefing room. Oh, President you know what? When President Trump says he's going to blow up Mars, he's just joking. He's more likely to blow up Venus, since that's where women are from. <laughs> Incredibly vicious rumors about a sex tape between the First Lady Melania Trump and President Trump in the Lincoln bedroom. <laughs> I can assure you that that tape exists, and it will be available for $6.99 for my <laughs> Yes, thank you for your question. The question was, is it true that it is illegal now to ask questions at press conferences? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> You're going to jail. Security, Steve. Thank you. The president will not stand by while being called a bully and a misogynist. In fact, he called the prime minister of England just this morning and told her to, quote, watch her pretty little mouth. So, there you go. How did you get in? Steve, get him out. MSNBC is in here again. <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, 
And let me... You caused it, really, didn't you? Yeah, it was my yeah, fault. Yeah, a lot of that was, like, yeah. not that far off. It was, uh, <laughs> he didn't necessarily blow up Mars, but he did invent a space force. Yeah. There was, like, the misogyny everywhere. He did ban people from the press room. Yeah. Like, yeah. that was... Um, uh, annoyingly prophetic. Dan yeah, but Cassandra Illich over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, my, I guess my point is, is like, oh well, I made that thinking it, that was hyperbole, but it, it obviously it just wasn't. It was just no, half a course. That was first gear. Yeah. Next up, please give it up for Kathy Wilcox. <laughs> Thank you. Um, uh, I'm, I'm a little unrehearsed because I'm just waiting for that muse to, to strike me and I'll tell you what's happening as soon as I see the pictures. Rather than, than put a, an argument for whether satire is more powerful than journalism because I kind of exist somewhere on the line between those things, I suppose. Somewhere I have, a, I have a, you know, an ID card that actually calls me a journalist, so maybe, and, <laughs> and, and, and the Walkleys. They're called journalism, yeah, so, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, but as, as a satirist and a cartoonist, obviously it's a very dangerous job and I want to, you know, give you an idea of some of the dangers. I mean, apart, quite apart from getting assassinated or uh, getting arrested and being, you know, uh, you know, like imprisoned and things like that by regimes, like totalitarian regimes and things like that, uh, you know, obviously that, you all know about that. that, that's truly dangerous. So all I can talk about is the, is the thin end of that wedge, you know, the little things that, um, the, the, the sorts of dangers that I live in my day-to-day -day -day life. Don't say yourself short, someone might shoot you. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and you'd all be very sad, wouldn't you, for a moment. But somewhere you'd say, yeah, but, you know, she kind of deserved it because she was always poking fun. I have, a, I have a little drawing that you did for me when my wife was pregnant. Uh-oh. Of, of her pregnant with Moses and, and I'm there too. And yeah. I'll tell you what, if you got shot, that might come on. <laughs> yes. Right. So, um, so I want to... Um, you can meet him in the car park after <laughs> Well, I'm really glad that Ben has introduced the idea of me getting shot into, into the room. So we, everything that happens after after now is uh, is like kind of relief, anyway. So, um, but first of all, the thing is that that you. It, is, it can be surprising because you're working, especially these days, on your own, from your own house, in your own room and not actually even in a newsroom and never even meeting politicians and never going to Canberra and I'm not an insider and I'm not part of a press gallery and I've always kind of assumed because I'm not one of those sort of upfront, out there um, cartoonists that I'm not buddies with the politicians and I, and I kind of tell myself that they don't see what I do so it doesn't matter what I do. The, um, um, first cartoon, Dan, if you'd like to bring up, is, um, is uh, what have we got? We've got uh, the standard rigger. So um, he, when uh, Scott Morrison wanted to know who knew what about the uh, rape of, uh, or alleged, sorry, rape of Brittany Higgins in, in, uh, in an office in Parliament, Phil, I'm relying on you to get to the bottom of who in my office knew what, when, and then submit your findings in the usual way. And um, you just may see that there's a super shredder in the background there. <laughs> and the Phil in question is one Phil Gatchens, a very useful man to the Prime Minister and has been for several years. He's been his, you know, his, his uh, advisor and 2IC and, and his head of prime minister and cabinet and, and so forth. So he is the one who, you know, you heard was, uh, was uh, t tasked with doing this investigation and he is the one you found out about some 
weeks, months later, in fact, he had... He, that he had suspended that investigation, but that nobody had really heard about it. But the weird, weird thing about doing this cartoon was that the day that was published, I received a phone call. I picked it. It's not a number I recognise. Yeah. Uh, and there on the phone is, hello, is that Kathy Wilcox? Oh. Yes, it is. Phil Gatchins. Whoa! Had you filed? I had filed. It had been published oh, in the right. newspaper. Okay, yes. Wow. Yes, I say. He said, I just wanted to let you know that um, I don't normally wear a tie. <laughs> gotcha. You drew me in the, in the cartoon with the tie. Yes, I did. And, um, and I'm, I'm quite known for not wearing a tie. Oh, it gets, oh it gets, I see. It gets caught in the shredder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, so, the thing I think we all agree everyone knows me for, yeah, yeah, yeah. the guy who's been really keeping this very important report at bay, is my classic open collar. Yeah. So I said, well, now that you mention it, I have to admit that when I was looking up photo reference to draw you, I did see a number of pictures of you Without a tie, but I just, I was in a hurry and I just assumed that the ones with the ties were just further down sure, the search. Sure, More and, fool you. Oh, yes. And he said, well, just don't do it again. <laughs> I see virtually hey, everyone in this room is rocking his signature look. Too. <laughs> <laughs> no I one said, in this room is yeah, wearing yeah. a tie. There's, of course, the TikTok dance, do the gatians. <laughs> When he said don't do it again, was it sinister? What was the tone? I said, I can assure you I will be very careful not to make that mistake again. Wow. And he said, okay, you know I'm only joking, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. oh, the old I'm only joking. Right. Oh, yeah. Did you yeah. show him a mankini the next time you <laughs> had to draw a cartoon? That's a great so, idea. So that was only the first time I ever drew him. So... It so happened, as, as mentioned, uh, some weeks later, there was some toing and froing in Senate estimates and so forth, and there was further question about what the Prime Minister knew, and there was further revelation that this, this inquiry had been suspended, so the Prime Minister hadn't had an answer to it because, in fact, it had been suspended, and he hadn't been told about that either. Mm -hmm. So, And there were various other things that he hadn't been told about. So if we could flip to the next cartoon, which I consider yeah. oh. to be a very good opportunity for a cartoonist who's been possibly, possibly joked about with by a very powerful man behind the Prime Minister. So Australia's most senior public servant, just so everybody knew who I was talking about, the Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, Phil Gatchins, does not wear a tie. He told me himself after I wrongly drew him wearing a tie. Now I apologise for this cardinal sin of a cartoonist, which is to put themselves in a cartoon. I don't think I've ever seen you do that outside of there. Oh, I've you? done a few times, but it has to be for a very good reason, sure, yeah. Ben. And Garfield I figured this was... Garfield used to put himself in his cartoon. Yeah, yeah. Very Who did? Yeah. <laughs> Who did? Garfield. Oh, Garfield. <laughs> <laughs> so, recently, I thought, you know, I, this is an informative cartoon. Recently, the PM didn't know about Brittany Higgins' rape, Mr Gatchin suspending his inquiry into who knew what, the PMO backgrounding journalists about Ms Higgins' partner. Where is Phil Gatchin's tie? <laughs> yeah! So, I got to the bottom of that mystery.
history. And the final frame is Phil with the tie wrapped around did his he, head. Did he it's call the you? Prime Minister with the oh, the Prime Minister with, with Phil tie oh, yes. wrapped around um, his eyes, keeping sure, making sure that he doesn't he know. The follow-up phone call, like yeah. he did not. My dad so wanted to know if he followed up. He yeah. was on the phone. Has he called you yet? Has he called you yet? Has he called? I said, I think he's smart enough to know not ever to call me again. <laughs> <laughs> so, so oh. that was one thing to know that the person is 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 watching you sort of with that closeness mm. that they can phone you on your mobile I haven't given him my mobile phone I don't know how he knows that except yeah. probably you know, press... scammers who just tried to call <laughs> <him>. <laughs> yes yeah. those friends of mine so so that's one thing and the other danger for people in in this position is I would say litigious politicians you might remember that um, that the uh, then Attorney General was in a spot of bother uh, over over allegations of what he had done in his in his carefree youth, and that he came out and finally made this speech, and it was a, it was a much waited for moment, and and click 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 all the all the cameras are going, and he's there, and the lights on him, and and lots of close ups to his face, and is he is he acting? Is it for real? Is what's he saying here? So. I felt like I wanted to act him there. So for me to have to disprove something that didn't happen, and I love that, isn't that? This is since, since Trump to say didn't happen. It's just like, it's like a little kid going, it's gone away. It's gone away. No, I didn't break the vase, mummy. It's gone away. It didn't happen. So something that didn't happen would be the end of the rule of law in Australia. Thank you. <laughs> uh, secret trials, partisan appointments, a toothless integrity body, all other matters of a rule of law if you're really gonna go looking in it. And he goes, nobody questions the rule of law. So, so uh, it, it has been observed that I am a frustrated actrine and I put myself in my, in my work. However, this had to get past the lawyers mm. who occasionally are given, you know, to look at my cartoon by the, by the editor that I submitted to. I have enormous free reign. I submit my cartoons. Mostly I don't hear boo from anybody about it, uh, except maybe a thanks for sending it or something like that from the sub-editor. But I don't have to run ideas past an editor. I don't have to, you know, submit five, five ideas to, to somebody to see if they're funny. I get to just do the stuff. And it's only when something is usually legally contentious or in very poor, poor taste, which of course I would never do, um, uh, that, that, that they, you know, have to maybe question something. So this one got run past the lawyers. And in the old days, there was a lawyer at the Herald who you hoped that he was the guy who was on on the night when your cartoon got lawyered because it was very easy and he had very wide margins and, you know, he'd, mm. he'd wave anything through. These days, we have much more sort of nervous, nervous lawyers and they're shared by, by both the Herald and the Age. So you can't kind of go, well, this one said it's OK so to argue with that one. So I'm, there's only me now to argue for things with the lawyers. So I argued... That oh well, well no their their what complaint was, was their, their was... complaint was He's not that flexible. I am suggesting <laughs> I am suggesting especially in in frame six here that he is insincere oh. that he is just acting uh, so so I've made it look theatrical for the people on the podcast it's a picture of uh, Christian, Christian Porter, Porter bowing is doing a very grandiose bow thanking yeah. thanking people for for uh, hearing him out there 
And the um, yeah, the lawyer said no. That is suggesting that he's he's not sincere. Wow. Anyway, I went away, and first of all, I said I argued, and I said, in my cartoon, I'm not saying any more than our own journalists have written, our own opinion writers mm. and so forth. They have all, you know, questioned this thing, and also, I'm just using his words, and I'm, you know, and and so that little bow is the only kind of affectation in a way. But I said, but if I take the bow out, will you be okay? So, here is the cartoon. <laughs> all the same, except frame six has been changed, and they went, okay, we're okay with that. <laughs> and I thought, wow, I won, I won against the lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> this time he's got his hand on his heart. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. He's sincerely there. Um, but um, that is some. But but it's not so much that I had that I won against the lawyers. It's that um, that the lawyers or the newspapers, the mastheads, were so intimidated by this this guy who has proven himself to be litigious and was in the mm. process of suing the ABC yeah. and all that sort of thing, that they were twice shy about doing anything that might yeah. draw attention and, 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 you know, cause him to arc up. Anyway, nobody, nobody got hurt, nobody got sued, and I didn't hear any more about that. But, um, Not even but the ABC I, got sued in the end. No, yeah. no, yeah. that's right. It didn't, it didn't end that's up. That's a free kick. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if you fall over and trip in your driveway, sue the ABC. <laughs> 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 so um, that's those are a couple of the dangers. Therefore, being watched, um, being potentially sued by litigious politicians. Now, what else have we got? Oh yes, doing things about mm, Russia or uh, Israel or a few. There are a few like really, really delicate pieces of ground. But I have come to understand the the reaction I will get when I do something, uh, do a cartoon that is about one of those difficult areas. And on this case, uh, this was like, you know, like uh, I could have timed my watch, um, set my watch by this one because I know now from years of occasionally doing things about Russia and Putin and all the rest of it that you don't get told, oh, you're an ignorant asshole, you know, you shouldn't do that, you're wrong, blah, blah. You, got, you get told, oh, I'm really sorry that you're so ignorant. How embarrassed <laughs> you must be. You should really educate yourself. You must feel sorry so embarrassed to be so stupid one like you who is normally so smart so they do this little manipulating thing where you feel like an idiot so you have been successfully propagandized Kathy there is another side to this story that you need to make yourself aware of well that was only a couple of days what was it um, the third I think it was the next day that the, 23rd um, the, that no, the, the same the same t same day the next day that the um, invasion happened oh, um, right. yeah so so you know I think he was wrong, and also I, I know now not to worry about that um, that sort of intimidating response because it is very formulaic and uh, and and it comes at you from a, a usually a fairly organised lobby, although that might not and have been. This and is, then this, this is, is this is just a the final, tweet. The final danger is whimsy. Do not engage in whimsy <laughs> at all costs. Not on Twitter. Not when you're expected to be a political commentator. Ever stop to think how amazing birds' nests are? I mean, if we tried to do that, we'd never get it through council for a start um, and the structural engineering so potentially three to four full-grown magpies in twigs and fluff and bird poo 
cantilevered. Sure, that's the um, that's the submission to council. Yes, I do actually. I think every person who experiences homelessness <laughs> thinks about the natural right <laughs> to make a safe nest anywhere on earth without it being illegal or the land owned by someone else. Nested peeps have no idea about the trauma of being denied the right to exist. <laughs> I was schooled. I can tell I you. Mean, My God. Fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what the red flag in this tweet, though, is, Kathy? <laughs> the globe. <laughs> Anyone that's got emojis next to their yeah, name right. on Twitter, no good. Okay. That's what you're gonna get from yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. My favourite thing about everyone getting abused on Twitter is that, uh, <laughs> and there's so many things. Yeah. Yeah. We simply don't have time to go through all of them. Yeah. But, um, is that because uh, I work at Triple J and we've got a text line, mm. and so like before, everyone has been like. I'm getting a bit abused. I'm like, welcome to the fucking <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the nightmare. Welcome to the seventh circle of hell. Can I tell you the most delightful time that I got abused on social media after posting one of my videos to Facebook? Um, which is really just the, you know, boomer brain graveyard at this point. But I posted it and, you know, a couple of people commented, whatever. And then someone underneath the video commented, Go away. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, hang on, you're on my page. <laughs> and I clicked on the profile and it was an older woman from Tasmania that really enjoyed bird watching. <laughs> you've got to watch for the bird watchers. You've got to watch for yeah. They are potent. But I, and I thought, I don't, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this. And her name was Mary. And I said, hi, Mary. Um, you're on my page. <laughs> I can't go away. <laughs> if you'd like to, you can. Uh, and, and then I left it and I you know, closed the laptop. And I thought, about, that was the tone that I had intended it in my mind. <laughs> and I came back maybe an hour and a half later and there was all of this vitriol against oh. poor Mary the oh. bird. Oh. Did it. You started a pile on. And I started a pile on yeah. unwittingly, unknowingly, completely unintentionally. Did you try and call it off? I deleted the whole thing. Oh. And I was close to deleting my entire Facebook. Yeah. Uh, You're a better actor and governance professional than Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I should run Facebook. <laughs> yep. yep, no, I've done that too. I've, I've deleted a, a tweet that has provoked. A polemical, even though it didn't, it wasn't meant to. Because yeah, likewise, it's you know. Yeah. Just... Have any of the creators on stage tonight created anything that's dangerous, like Kathy? <laughs> oh, uh, I mean, I haven't done any damage to poor Mary. If that's yeah. <laughs> I get death threats sometimes, but. Mm. It's just. It's from Mo? It's from my son. Because yeah. I refuse to give him apricots unless he sleeps until six. Uh, but it's like, I don't know, I think as a guy it's, it's really different because I'm just like. Uh, I think you, you know what I mean? Like, mm. but it's you. There was one tweet I did, which was like, sometimes I'm just like, I'm having too good a day. I'm just gonna see how many people I can piss off at once. <laughs> and it was like right after Boris Johnson had gotten COVID, and a lot of people were like, good. <laughs> and then there were all this like weird hand wringing was coming up. Being like, well, you might not agree with him, but he's a human being. And then, and then there was like. That couple of days later, Kim Jong Un was reported as ill, and I just like, <laughs> I just. <laughs> the young, the, 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 yeah, 
I just tweeted, like, however you feel about his politics, um, he's a human being. <laughs> and I think we can all, like, come together on that or something like that. And it was, like, it was just, it was deliberately just, um, it was just sort of on the edge of sincere that people would think I was... But that's how you tweet all the time. <laughs> the, best, the best thing, this didn't get me death threats, but this made Twitter unusable for me for about, for about a day, was during the Oscars a couple of years ago, I tweeted, this is all well and good, but wouldn't it be wonderful if we gave awards to books? And <laughs> I had a mixture of people being like, you fuck what we do! And people being like, oh, actually, I, I appreciate the sentiment, but we do give books. And, and then because I was born, I'd just be like, no, we don't. And they'd be like, they'd be like no, we, we do. The Nobel Prize goes to literature. And I'd be like, that's for science. It's so sad. Um, I have a full-time job and a child. Like, but yeah, that one got me death threats, and I told my wife, because she was like, I saw this thing, why did you do that? And I was like, oh, I don't know, honey, but it's funny, because look at these people who are saying they're going to kill me. And she was like, what the fuck? And I was like, oh, it's, it's online. Um, I remember getting a slew of, like, when I um, did the first season of Question Everything last year, it's like, I, I don't really check a lot of my social media, but then, you know, once you start getting notifications from people with wraparound sunglasses mm. and Australian flag mm. profiles in, in, in their Twitter, you're like, uh-oh, something's gone horribly wrong. <laughs> and it turns out that there was a YouTuber that made a video about me and, you know, it was like, ABC leftist journal, you know, like sucking on the government tea, yada, yada, yada. And I kind of just, I watched the video just to make sure that there was nothing that was like, there was no call to, to violence or anything towards me. Yeah. But I got a, a, an unrelenting barrage on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, in my email. I'm not sure how they found my email, but no. I started getting emails. I, um, I tweeted it when I saw it go viral. <laughs> oh, that's, 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 you want to directly talk to Jan. Yeah. Yeah. That's how they got the email. And the thing is, it's, it's like there is nothing that the ABC can do. They were like, well, you could just block people. Oh. I'm aware of the button, ABC. <laughs> no, but that's, I mean, that's kind of like partly the problem of did being... You feel, did you feel uh, your life was at risk at any point? Look, I didn't feel like my life was at risk, really, but I did feel like most of the people online, when you, you know, you say something that they don't particularly like and something like this happens, they'll vent online and then they'll fuck off. But yeah. sometimes I think to myself, what if there is just that one yeah. really hectic <laughs> person who doesn't fuck off yeah. and for whatever reason has a bee in his bonnet about you yep. and this thing that you said and did and then finds your address online and then shows up like that is not a ridiculous no. thing to yeah. think so that's that's the reality and the fact is that it doesn't matter whether you're a freelancer or whether you work for a legacy media organization there's nothing that can be done here i've emailed youtube <laughs> and they've come back and been, been like oh and this was for a, a different matter with a completely different person they're like you know nothing broke our rules of yeah, uh yeah. of engagement or whatever it is so there's really nothing that we can do well jan we've got a surprise for you side stage we have <laughs> <laughs> Um, the only time I've ever done anything kind of remotely sort of dangerous through comedy was I, I got I got deported from Manus Island, uh, making a Where the Bloody Hell Are You sketch um, with refugees on Manus Island. I'll, I'll just play for you that now, and we'll move on. <laughs> You stuck the boat, you put us in a prison in a tropical island. In six years of time, I had a lot of time to think, mostly about my mode of transport. You want to go by boat or plane? 
entire premise that satire does not change hearts and minds and that it does not necessarily hold the powerful to account but I'm gonna go a little bit further uh, and you know write a little bit of a love letter a manifesto perhaps to my people entitled uh, journalists and comedians should maybe think about shutting the fuck up <laughs> a little bit more um, so sometimes people call me a journalist slash comedian, which I think is um, a nice way of them saying that I'm a bit shit at both. Uh, but that's okay, that's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's anytime anyone uses the slash, that's kind of how you know, right? Like if you go to an Italian slash Chinese restaurant. <laughs> oh, you're not getting either of those things. No, you're getting dysentery. <laughs> In this context, I think the slash is important, right? Journalist slash comedian, because it means that I have yielded both the pen and the joke. And I can tell you unequivocally right here, ladies and gentlemen, that when it comes to changing hearts and minds and when it comes to making the world a better place, they are both garbage. <laughs> they are utterly fucking useless. No one's life has been improved by a strongly worded op-ed. No one wakes up in the cancer ward and says, oh my God, you know what changed my mind? Do you know what cured me? Jan Fran's Walkley award-winning opinion, The Frank 2019. There's <laughs> gotta be one, there's gotta be one. Not the guy in the cancer ward, I'm thinking right there. I mean, no one wants to be held hostage only for the cops to show up, surround the building and pull out their puns. <laughs> there's times, there's, oh, you do? Yeah. You're dead. <laughs> no, um, we can sit here and we can talk about whether the joke is mightier than the pen, whether the pen is mightier than the joke. You know what is mightier than both of them? Subsonic missiles. <laughs> and I can tell you that nobody is worried about Vladimir Putin dropping a biro on Kiev. <laughs> this is truly the real world. And I think that terrible things happen in the real world. You know, the planet is heating up. US inflation is the highest that it has been in 40 years. Uh, Clive Palmer survived COVID, <laughs> even though he is the nation's underlying health condition. <laughs> We cannot tackle these things purely with jokes and pens, unless we use the pen as some sort of stabbing instrument <laughs> and ambush Clive as he's burning an effigy of Mark McGowan in a Red Rooster car park, <laughs> as he tends to do. So I would go so far as to say that we are perhaps, bear with me, wielding the pen and the joke a little bit too much. Journalists and comedians. And we have this idea that it's there to hold people to account and it's there to change hearts and minds. And I constantly hear this refrain that sunlight is the best disinfectant. Sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? 
it's a bit of a sort of a cliche thing to say about sunlight, so I'll just throw another cliche thing to say about sunlight, which is that it can also make things grow. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we think about what we're actually putting in the sun over and over and over again, if your intention is to disinfect it and it ends up growing, well, suddenly you have quite a big problem on your hands. Everyone has a big problem on their hands. And the other thing that I would caution is that when we talk about yielding jokes or yielding pens, it turns out anyone can actually yield a joke or a pen. Everyone has an opinion now. And some of them are award-winning. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially cancer cure. <laughs> Potentially, I mean, the night is young. Yeah. Just because it hasn't happened yet, yeah, it doesn't exactly. mean that it won't be. it out. But I truly think that everyone being or having the access to be an armchair expert is one of the most terrible things to happen to society currently. Jokes and pens are meant to help us understand the world around us, right? So that we can make it better. But the world is very complicated. And nuance on the internet is like a pregnant lady's vagina. <laughs> no matter how hard you try, you just can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was really wondering where this is going. <laughs> Patreon members, Jan's trying to look at her vagina. The thing is, it's there. I know it's there. It's just obscured. So there should be some ground rules perhaps in place to determine who should wield the pen and who should wield the joke and under what circumstance. If you are someone who wants to talk about ivermectin but you can't spell ivermectin, you don't get to talk about ivermectin. No pen for you. <laughs> no horses either. <laughs> I say that there's just one suggestion. This is totally off the top of my head. I've thought about it fleetingly, but I think it's a good idea. I think that we writers and journalists and jokesters, I think that we should take a back seat in this moment to a group of people who are currently at their most fuckable scientists. <laughs> this is their window. We need science now, in my view, more than ever, especially because we have a prime minister who, as we know, loves to take policy advice from God and from God's one true son, Lachlan. <laughs> science is what will change hearts and minds. Science is mightier than the pen. It is mightier than the joke. Art is what will change hearts and minds. Mightier than the pen, mightier than the joke. Do you want to know what the highest form of knowledge is? It's empathy. I read that on the back of a tampon pack. <laughs> <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> but imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I need those anymore. <laughs> Imagine if we were obscuring all of these potential forms of knowledge with our jokes and with our articles and with our opinions and with our tweets and with our commentary. What is it that we are doing to the world? 
It's true that, you know, you can say the joke is mightier than the pen, you can say the pen is mightier than the joke. It doesn't matter. There are things that are mightier than both of them, uh, including hypersonic missiles, <laughs> as it turns out. Yeah, thank you, Jan. <laughs> Lewis Hobber. Oh, thank you. We have run a little bit long, I, I assume, because I really need to pee. I don't know if anyone else <laughs> yeah, does. Exactly. That's, Mate, that's what, <laughs> so that's pretty much how I can tell the running time of these things. So I'll, I'll crack through it. Um, but look, I, I, the reason I think, just to wrap it all up, uh, that satirists, and look, I'll say satirists and comedians, and I'm referring to us, and you might be like, yeah, I don't even think of myself as a satirist. I mostly ask people where they've been stuck on radio. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm not out there doing the, the good stuff. You know what I mean? I'm not, John, I'm not John Oliver. I'm an idiot. So just accept that I'm going to use that term broadly, and let's, r r let's move past it so we can all pee. But I, the reason I think that satirists aren't the new journalists is simple. We can't exist without journalists. Like, 100% of jokes written by political comedians get written because they read a story in the news and the news is written by journalists. Like, we're lazy. We're too lazy to do it. And to show how lazy we are, for the next little while, I'm just going to make the same point over and over again <laughs> using slightly different metaphors. Satirists aren't disrupting journalism. We're leeching off it. We're a pilot fish attached to a shark. We're the cackling hyenas picking at the bones of politicians left behind by lions. If journalists are a majestic giraffe using its height to scan for danger, we are a silly bird that lands on its head. <laughs> Forced to look wherever the giraffe turns. <laughs> oh, there's more. <laughs> Comedians are the last person in the human centipede. <laughs> Just taking the research already digested and shut out by reporters and editors, eating it up and then shitting it out again in a slightly different way. <laughs> it's still shit. <laughs> but our shit was shat by a human centipede and that's going to get clicks. <laughs> Like, journalists have to do a lot of stuff that is important and boring. Comedians want to do stuff that is frivolous and exciting. Like, can anyone here be bothered learning what an interest rate is? You know what I mean? Like, no, there's no such thing as a financial comedian. It would be cruel to teach us about money only for us to learn we'll never get it. <laughs> like, the grunt work of political journalism is getting things on the record. Like, that's, that's the grunt stuff, that's the important stuff. Like, going to boring press conferences, making boring calls, getting people to say stuff. Like, in 2008, when a journalist got Scott Morrison on the record saying that he was in favour of a government supporting people buying houses with a housing equity scheme, that was boring in 2008. And in 2017, when he said it again, and that he still supported the idea, it was boring then. But in 2022, when he attacks Labor for the exact same idea, <laughs> it suddenly becomes something, right? <laughs> Something that gets the mouths of the little human centipede very excited. <laughs> but good things take time, even hypocrisy. And time is something that journalists can afford to have. And look, I am not 
deifying journalists. <laughs> they're normal people, and in fact, they're worse than normal people. <laughs> because their job is to be annoying, ideally to people in power. But comedians, Oh, we're people pleasers. <laughs> <laughs> Applause is our nourishment. <laughs> like, it's the base of our food pyramid. And so I don't think comedians are incapable of doing the work of journalists, but we're not financially motivated to piss people off. Like, we get paid by the ticket. So I think journalists have an employer, and an employer who pays them more, the better they are at annoying people. It's the opposite <laughs> of what comedians do. Like, I would say the ABC has at times paid comedians to be annoying and not in the way they pay me to be annoying which is just by accident <laughs> but it's more of a sort of deliberate choice to pay comedians to be annoying on shows like Chaser or Tonightly which you've talked about already very few people in comedy choose to make audiences happy by annoying powerful people on a freelance basis it's just not a smart move and so my point is really that you you can't have political satire without journalists, but you can very easily have journalism without satirists. Because we're not going to do the research, and you know what? <laughs> Sometimes you just need someone to look down the barrel of a camera and say, Princess Diana's dead. <laughs> <laughs> and you need them not to follow that up with, damn, lady died. <laughs> That's some topical stuff for you. <laughs> 1997. <laughs> Not too soon, though. Yeah. <laughs> like, if, if Four Corners was run by comedians, it would be the Comedy Central roast. If 60 Minutes was one run by comedians, it'd go for 50 minutes and we'd charge for the full hour. <laughs> if Current Affair was run by comedians, it'd be a bit better. <laughs> like, comedians aren't useless. I mean, we're not as bad as opinion writers. Um, <laughs> Award winner. <laughs> but mostly we're just putting a shiny new package on an existing product and selling it as something new. And that is why we often end up selling it for free. <laughs> Thank you. Well, now comes the most important part of the evening. We get to decide whether jokes are more important than journalism. Oh, this could really go either way. <laughs> this could really go either way. There's a lot of strong points in favour of We're going to tick a box here uh, and send it off to the Governor General. So let's, um, if you all want to, I don't know, maybe you want to, should we do? bring a red text? Oh, you've got a oh, I've got a black text. Okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. All right, so let's um, <laughs> raise your hand, or actually, because it's a podcast, by a round of applause, are jokes more important than journalism? Wait. Word we've been saying. <laughs> you didn't. And conversely, yeah. is journalism more important than jokes? Yeah. And what about on the panel here? Just raise your hands. Is jokes more important than journalism? I'm going to fucking flip it. Yes. Because <laughs> you never know what he's going to do. I'm an agent of chaos. Can I, can, I, can I give you the one counter counter case? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I know. I don't know if we've got time for this. Just that. My dad reckons, and he's a conservative old bloke, yeah. and, he, and he only gets the newspaper, the Herald, because I'm in it. <laughs> and he says if I stop drawing for the Herald, he will cancel his subscription. Oh. So that is how powerful the satire <laughs> is. I think that very specific circumstance, I agree. <laughs> I, I'm, what I'm hearing is nepotism rules over everything. Yeah. <laughs> so one more time, jokes, is jokes better than journalism? Yeah. Is journalism better than jokes? Yeah. I think, got, I think journalism, 
Is satire more powerful than journalism? I Motion think it's defeated. a no. No. Uh -huh. uh, all right, let's send this to the Governor-General. Please, Sarah, will you please post this immediately to David Hurley. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. You're going to take this as quick as you can, Sarah. <laughs> take it as quick as you can to the Governor-General, Sarah. Take it. Run! Go! Run like the wind, Sarah! It's express! <laughs> Woo! for having us here. Also, road mics and our Patreon supporters. Until next time, there's always... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.